Good morning. You guys doing okay? It was dark when we started the nine o'clock service this morning. Crazy. I thought we were going to get spring early, and instead uh, we get this. Anybody ready to move back out of Idaho at this point? No? Okay. It's worth it. All right. Uh, If you're new with us, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and we try our best to work our way through passages of Scripture, uh, books at a time, verse by verse. And so for like the last year, we've been in the book of Matthew, probably. And last week, we dove out to talk about uh, some of our vision for 2021. And if you weren't with us last week and you're wondering who we are as a church, what it looks like to plug in, what my voice sounds like when there's an echo on it. Uh, If you're wondering how to connect here, where our church is headed, I'd encourage you to go listen to the message from last week because it kind of lays that out for you for this next year if you're new with us. Um, Other than that, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11 this morning, specifically in verses 1 through 19. And so if you guys would open up your Bibles, just say word when you get there. Matthew 11, 1, word. Okay, awesome. So glad you guys are with me this morning. I woke up tired this morning. I sort of need you guys to pump me up. Is that okay? Matthew 11, 1 through 19. There we go. There we go. Who's excited to read the Bible? Oh my gosh, it's so good. Okay. Matthew 11, 1 through 19. Big passage this morning. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. And then did you go out to see, or what did you go out, then go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that we can trust that it will, by your spirit, accomplish something in us that I cannot do with my mouth. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that you open up our hearts to hear from you. God, I have no idea where anybody in this room is at in their walk with you, in life, what things they're battling, what things 
they're wrestling with this morning. But what I do know, Jesus, is that your word provides a source of truth for us and nourishment. And I pray this morning as we drink from the well of living water from your word, Jesus, that you would nourish our souls this morning. For those that are wrestling, for those in this room that find themselves doubting and uncertain this morning, I pray they find nourishment from your word this morning, Jesus. And we devote this time to you. We ask God that you would bless it, that you would anoint it, and you would use it for your purposes to point everybody back to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I often don't know when it comes to preparing a sermon uh, who it is I'm talking to. And I also can't trust that any of you have listened to prior sermons leading up to today because I don't blame you. I wouldn't want to sit and listen to me for long periods of time. Um, But I have no idea your backgrounds, where you come from, what you know about the Bible, who, like what, if you have any context with anything that we're reading. And so I kind of want to take things in such a way where we can break things down for you and help you understand what it is you're reading. Um, And I want to give you the assurance this morning that we are a church that does back up on the authority of the Word of God. There's something rich and nourishing to God's Word that our culture, our world needs desperately, especially in the season we find ourselves in. But a question that I had for you guys this morning um, that I'm sure most of you are going to answer yes to is, have you ever doubted something in your life? Anybody? Half the first service has doubted before. And like 5% of you have ever had a doubt. So that's really amazing. Some really certain people in here. But perhaps in the last year especially, you've faced more doubts than ever before in your life. And perhaps some of you are even sitting here this morning with more doubt than certainty. And I hope this morning that you realize that you aren't alone. That you aren't the only one wrestling right now. This last year sent people running for answers and looking for answers in so many different places on so many different levels from an individual's life to church to race to politics to disease. It's been this whirlwind of a year, but many have questioned their faith in the last year. And instead of the church helping to feed a curious soul by walking people through doubts with the word of God, I feel like we've often been guilty of pushing doubters away or or acting as though we've never had doubts ourselves and not allowing those who are less certain of their faith to actually wrestle with the Lord. There's something really good and healthy about that. People are asking questions right now that actually have eternal significance and the church should actually learn how to compassionately walk with people through their doubts. But the big questions people have asked in this last year are questions like, is there really a God? Is Jesus really the Messiah? Is he really the only way? And these questions deserve an answer. We as the church can't sit back and just be like, figure it out on your own. We need to dig into the word and dig into the word with others and help show them the answer. Like, can we ask answer the questions that they're asking? This is why we hide the word in our hearts, because the word is the only truth that we have. That, that last question is the very question that John the Baptist struggles with in this passage that we're looking at this morning. And the answer to that question is one of the most important questions that we can wrestle, wrestle with as followers of Jesus. Is Jesus really the Christ? Is he really it? And so today I, I want us to see that he is the Messiah and I want us to understand how that impacts us now. 
Um, this word Messiah in the Hebrew is a word Mashiach, which actually means anointed one, anointed with oil. It's the anointed one. So when we say Jesus is the Messiah, what we're saying is he is the only one. We, we live in a culture nowadays who would say that um, there's many ways to the same God, that there's this God that exists and there's dozens of different ways that you can find yourself to him. If you ascribe to the word of God, to the Bible, the Holy Scriptures as a source of truth, the source of truth, there is no way for you to back that premise. Because the word of God is very clear that there's one way to God and there's only one God. And that way to God is through Jesus himself who died on the cross for our sins and rose again. It's only through Jesus who's known as the Messiah, the, the only one, the anointed one is Jesus Christ. And so that's really to lay a foundation this morning. That's what we're saying. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the only way, the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus. So what does it mean for us that Jesus is the Christ? It means that he is the Messiah, that there's only one way. When we look at the local church, we don't often connect to a local church body and make decisions in our life to walk in accord with the word of God just because it's like merely exercises and living out these nice little moral lives. Like that's not why we connect to the church. To, to be honest with you guys this morning, Christianity isn't even about morality. There are plenty of people living in this world that don't profess to be followers of Jesus that are trying to live moral lives built around this construct that says that life is just about trying to be a good person. And as karma states it, the better you are, then the better things that are done to you, the better things that happen, the more opportunities that come your way. So life is about karma. But this isn't the same for the life of a follower of Jesus, the, the Messiah, the Christ. We define morality different, and we believe there's a motivating force or a spirit that is actually leading us into this life into obedience. And so for the life of somebody trying to make sure that their karma is really strong, morality is sort of the central driving force for them in life. I want good karma. I want good things to happen to me, so I'm going to be a good person. But for the life of the follower of Jesus, it all hinges on the messiahship of Jesus Christ. Karma isn't driving us. Good works are not driving us. It's the spirit of the living God that it only comes to us through Jesus Christ. And so we live as these changed people because we really believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he really is the one who came, and that it is his spirit within us that continues to lead and to guide us. So we have this guy, John the Baptist, being talked about in this passage this morning. Outside of Jesus, he's maybe one of the more crucial figures in all of Scripture. And yet he's actually spoken of very little. We, we know that John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. We know that his mother Elizabeth and Jesus' mother Mary are pregnant at the same time. Uh, and then we, we start hearing about John the Baptist. And at the point we start hearing about John the Baptist in the scriptures, he's an adult. He's dressed in a garment made of camel's hair. He's got a leather belt wrapped around him. And what does he eat? Anybody? Locusts and wild honey is what he feeds off. He's like the Bear grills of Jesus' time, right? This gnarly dude. And he's spending his time in the wilderness of Judea, traveling around, and he's preaching one message. And that message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message he's preaching. In Matthew's account, Matthew tells us that John the Baptist is the one spoken of in the book of Isaiah chapter 40. 
The, the voice of one crying in, crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. In John's gospel account, John the Baptist was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. So he's preparing the way for the Messiah. In the Old Testament, we see references to somebody like John the Baptist in Isaiah 40, and we see references to somebody like John the Baptist in Malachi, Malachi 3.1. He says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's Malachi 3.1. Malachi 4.5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So John the Baptist was this figure that God sort of used to say, wake up, I'm here. He came to prepare the way of the Lord, to wake people up. The one that you've heard about, the one that was foretold in the Old Testament that, that, that would prepare the way of the Lord, like this is him. And so John the Baptist, this cousin of Jesus, this forerunner announcing the, the coming of the Messiah, he's also the one that we read in scripture that baptizes Jesus. And prior to baptizing Jesus, he says, I baptize, John the baptizer, I baptize with water for repentance, but he goes on to say about Jesus, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, is what it says about Jesus. And then John the Baptist baptizer witnesses the Spirit come upon Jesus at his baptism, like he gets a front row seat to this. So John's this cousin of Jesus, this forerunner preparing the way for Jesus. He watches the Spirit come upon Jesus, and he literally announces at Jesus' baptism that Jesus is who they've been waiting for, that Jesus' baptism is this baptism not by just repentance, but actually of the Spirit and of fire. And I say all that to say this. John the Baptist, this guy, gave you some context of who he is, what he's seen, scriptures pointing to him, comes onto the scene. Now, at this point in our passage, he finds himself in prison. He's in prison because actually he confronted King Herod because King Herod divorced his wife to marry his brother's wife. And John the Baptist confronts him about divorce. And it ends up getting him imprisoned. And eventually, John the Baptist will lose his life. And so here he sits in prison, cousin of Jesus, a forerunner for Jesus. The scriptures were pointing to him. He literally watched the Spirit come upon Jesus. And he acknowledges him as, I baptize for repentance. He baptizes with the Spirit and with fire. And I say all this because I want you to see how um, John the Baptist asks this question concerning the Messiahship of Jesus, and he's literally seen it all. And I want you to see how this answer to that question actually impacts you and us today, you and I today. I primarily want us to see this this morning, that Jesus is the one, that there's no other ways to God except through him, that Jesus was the Messiah spoken of all through the Old Testament. And then we have this John the Baptist guy paving the way for the Messiah. But we also see at the end of this passage that there's this blessing for those who follow him. And so if you look at verse 1, uh, chapter 11, one, verses 1 through 6, just to kind of categorize this section, this is, I'm going to categorize, or I'm going to entitle this, Jesus is the one who came. He says this, 
When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison, again, about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word about his disciples and he said to them, are you the one who's to come or shall we look for another? Interesting that John the Baptist, the guy who's been around it all, knew, supposedly knew, he's the one that begins, are, are you it or should we look for somebody else? And Jesus says, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. And I love this part that the blind receive their sight, that the lame walk, that lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, that the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Like the impact of Jesus's life is so gnarly. So you see in verse one, again, that he's in prison up to this point, that he can't directly ask Jesus this question himself, so he sends his disciples to go ask Jesus this question. And the interesting thing is that John doubted. John wondered if Jesus really was the one who came. Was he really the Messiah? Was he really the Christ? We may be tempted to read this passage and ask, like, how in the world could John the Baptist doubt? He knew. But before we go throwing rocks at him, I want you to understand this, that unlike Jesus, John was fully human. Fully human. He did not understand everything, just as we do not understand everything. Does anybody in this room understand everything? You got it all figured out. You can map out the whole last year for me. None of us do. We're human in the flesh. Like, we don't understand it, but God knows. John the Baptist was like us. He was in the flesh. He was a human man. And one of the main reasons that John probably doubted was because he didn't fully understand why Jesus was coming. Like many others Throughout this time, John probably thought that Jesus was coming as this political and military deliverer rather than a spiritual deliverer. In John's eyes, what what the Jews were waiting for is this king that was going to come in that was going to literally bring judgment upon all the people that have done awful things to their people, to the Jews. So they expected this king to come, this king to come, and to just kind of wipe everybody out and give them the judgment they deserve and take his place on the throne and let them live in their peaceful land. And even though this Messiah is there, John still has to wrestle with the fact that he found himself in prison. Like, on top of it all, He's in prison for doing what is right and obeying the Lord and making his allegiance known. And so here sits John in prison, contemplating all that he's hearing, all that's going on with Jesus. He's hearing the stories. Jesus is healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's casting out demons. Like all this stuff is going on. And John's going, is this actually the one? Because the one I expected was somebody totally different. And the rest of the Jews are asking the same question. To this day, the Jews are asking that same question. When is he going to come? The king that was promised to us. They did not see Jesus for who he was. And so here John sits in prison and he starts asking these questions. Is he the one that we've been waiting for? So doubt starts sinking in in John's brain. And many of the things that John has prophesied about uh, with regards to the Messiah still have not happened. And so John didn't know that Jesus had more in mind than just simply bringing judgment. And in Jesus' world, Jesus actually came to give deliverance first. 
wasn't just about judgment, it was about deliverance. And so while, while John and many of the Jews are waiting for their Messiah to come and bring judgment on the, all those that had been so awful to them, here stands Jesus, the Messiah, the one and only. And sometimes in life, I think we may doubt because we don't really understand why Jesus is doing what he's doing. Like th this past year is probably a perfect example for that. Who can make sense of all that's transpired in this last year? And yet, statistically, churches are struggling. People have taken all they've experienced in the last year, and they begin to do exactly what John the Baptist is doing, asking the question, why would God allow all that's happening in the world? And then that question starts to feed our doubts, and that, that potentially leads to abandoning our faith altogether. And for some of us, it's not questioning why he's doing what he's doing, but perhaps we just don't understand how God works. Perhaps he hasn't met our expectations, and so this causes doubt to rise up in us because the real problem, church, is that what we want is a God who exists in our own expectations. What we want is to make God ourselves and to create the box that God lives in, a God that would do everything I want, when I want it, how I want it. And so we formulate this God. Well then when things start to look differently than the world that we've created and we start to go, how could God do this? Well, what you realize is that God's not a liar, but you've actually begun to set the parameters for God to work and God didn't meet your expectations and it was never intended that way. So we step back as believers and we start going, this isn't about creating the box for God, like God actually creates the box for us. I'm not in control of my God. My God is actually in control of me. And, and so we doubt because we start, our expectations are let down. We, we doubt because there's uncertainty and we don't understand why God does things the way he does it. We doubt because we want God to do all the things that we want him to do the way we want, to do, they, the way we want them done in the timing that we want them done in. That's what leads to this doubt. And we've been guilty of freaking out over people asking questions in the church and thinking that doubt is bad. And I want to encourage us this morning, actually, I think we should encourage some of the doubt and walk with people who are doubting and point them to the truth as we see happening in this text. I don't know if you guys have heard of a guy named Oz Guinness, but this is what Oz says about doubt. He says, what has happened to create this doubt is that a problem such as a deep conflict or a bad experience has been allowed to usurp God's place and become the controlling principle of life. Instead of viewing the problem from the vantage point of faith, the doubter views faith from the vantage point of the problem. Instead of faith sizing up the problem, the situation ends with the problem scaling down faith. The world of faith is upside down and in the topsy-turvy reality of doubt, a problem has become God and God has become a problem. He goes on to say, if ours is an examined faith, we should be unafraid to doubt. There's no believing without some doubting and believing is all the stronger for understanding and resolving doubt. Doubt is not the problem. The problem is resolving in our hearts who Jesus actually is. Jesus responds to the disciples of John the Baptist in a very Jesus-ish way. Jesus quotes to them the words of Isaiah the prophet, 
Um, There are multiple places in the book of Isaiah which speak of the, the types of things that the Messiah would do. And John would have been really familiar with these prophecies concerning the Christ because John was a prophet. But Jesus was essentially saying, I'm doing all of these things that the Messiah will do. What do you think? Everything you thought he would do, I'm actually doing. What do you do with that? And the old argument, like, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it must be a duck, is really true. Like, Jesus' works and ministry were evidence of who he was. Jesus is saying, come and see, like, I am he. I am it. And then Jesus adds, blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. In other words, blessed is the one who isn't against me. Blessed is the one who accepts me as the Messiah. Jesus wants people to understand who he is and accept him as the Messiah. And if that person does so, there's a blessing that awaits for that person. After John's disciples leave, we see that Jesus begins to address who, the, who John the Baptist is. He shifts gears a little, a little bit and goes on to talk about John is the one who prepared the way. And Jesus seemed to want to make sure that no one who witnessed this encounter lost any respect or gained any misunderstanding about who John actually was. He doesn't slam him and be, hey, dummy, why are you questioning me? You know, he, he actually begins to ramp up like who John is to elevate. No, he is the one that the Old Testament spoke of that would prepare the way of the Lord. He says in verse 7 through 10, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So Jesus gives us these first two descriptors to tell us who John wasn't. John wasn't a reed swaying in the wind. That is, John wasn't weak. John wasn't impressionable. He he wasn't easily swayed by pressure from other people. He was true to his convictions and to his calling by God. I mean, it got him in prison. Also, he goes on to say that John wasn't a man dressed in soft clothes, sitting in some royal palace. He wasn't looking to rub shoulders with kings and uppity people. Sometimes, prophets would say whatever royalty wanted to hear in order to earn their favor. But for John, whose favor did John want? God's. That's all he cared about. And finally, Jesus says who who John, in fact, is. He says John's a prophet. He wasn't just any old prophet. John was the one sent to prepare the way for God, the Messiah. John was a prophet, and prophecies were made about John concerning the, 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 the coming of the Messiah. And there was this big chain of prophecies that were unfolding, and it literally kick-started with John, and then the whole thing starts to unfold as we read throughout the New Testament. But John really was a, a prophet, and Jesus really was sent by God. And Jesus is affirming that although John had some doubts, he really was sent by God, and he really did prepare the way for Jesus the Christ. And so when we doubt, we can be encouraged. We can be reminded by God's word that all of this didn't just fall into place. There's a plan. God was at work, and God is at work. 
John was sent to prepare the way for God's kingdom, and then Jesus came so that we could actually experience God's kingdom. And we have to get this. We have to understand this because you're living in a world that is telling you there's so many different ways to God, and you're constantly being barraged with those different ways. If as believers, we don't pick up this book and go, man, I'm gonna bury myself in this thing because I have to know what truth is because there's constantly this barrage of arrows coming at me from this world that are trying to take me out and convince me otherwise, I need to hide this in my heart because there will come moments in your life as have come in my life in the last year where you stop and go, I don't know who I am. I don't know what's going on. And you start to bury yourself in the world. Who does, in the word, who does God know, say that I am? Who is God? Remind myself, what does the word say about him? And that's exactly what happens in this passage. Sort of goes back, John, do you remember? Yada, yada, yada. Remember what was spoken of in Isaiah. Remember the prophecies. For John, that would have been like, oh, a breath of fresh air, a nice little reminder. Third thing, verses 11 through 15, blessed is the one who listens. So if you look at verses 11 through 15, it says this, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. All my notes say JTB, so I keep wanting to just say JTB. Yet the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of JTB until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Go back with me really quick. That Malachi 4-5 passage, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And then you go back to this passage and he says, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who's to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus makes these two huge statements back to back. One, there's no one who's ever been born who's greater, born of a woman, that isn't God, <laughs> better than John, greater than John the Baptist. That's a pretty massive statement. Jesus has no problems with John. He has no problem even with the fact that John has doubts. Jesus calls John this great prophet, and then he says that there's no one that's ever been born who was greater than John. John was righteous. John was brave. He was unique. John was the, the prophet who got, direct, got to directly prepare the way of the Messiah. He was great. But then Jesus makes a second statement that I just don't understand, but it is glorious for you and I. He says the person who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Isn't that remarkable? That John's the greatest and the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And I can tell you right now, you may need to double back and check the math on that because it doesn't make sense. Does anybody feel okay being greater than John? I don't. But here's what Jesus is saying. Is that the person who knows Jesus for who he truly is and for what he's truly done has access to something that is greater than any other experience of those before the work of Jesus. What an amazing thing. And the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. It changes things so fully and so dramatically that the least in the kingdom of heaven as fulfilled in Jesus 
are greater than the greatest without the work of Christ. John the Baptist was fantastic. He was holy. He sought God. He was the greatest prophet ever. But he experienced nothing like what those of us who truly know Jesus can experience. Jesus goes on to say that people have shown violence toward the kingdom of God. And we just read about that a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 10. People have shown violence towards God's prophets and God's ways for thousands of years. And then we even see that today. That, that, that's still taking place. It continues to happen. However, John is the Elijah to come. That is, he's preparing the way for God's people to receive God. He's literally laying the stone so that Jesus can come walk on it that eventually paves the way for you and I to enter into that greatness. And Jesus is telling us all that we need to listen. Like, we need to understand. That, that section says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He, he who, who can hear Take note of what it is you're hearing. Do you actually believe what it is that you're hearing? Listen to him. And then he goes on to say, verse 16, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And there's this amazing sort of poetic ending to this section. Jesus says, basically, this generation are like kids telling their friends, we played the flute and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, which was a, a lament for the dead, and you didn't mourn. Another way of saying this is, you're unresponsive. Like you have ears to hear and you haven't listened. The, the, the message has gone out and you've done nothing with it. And John the Baptist was accused of having a demon because he fasted. Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he was a friend of sinners and he ate and he drank. And so basically this world needs to listen. This world needs to understand who Jesus actually is. And Jesus was telling that generation to wake up and acknowledge who John the Baptist was, this man standing right before them. And John the Baptist needed, needed to be reminded of what the word actually said of who the Messiah would be and who he was preparing the way for. But we all could use a really good awakening, don't you think? Do you believe this? It's like, that's, that's all I can see Jesus saying is, do you believe this? You have ears to hear it. Do you believe what I'm saying? Do you take it to heart? And so when you doubt Remind yourself of the work of Jesus. Remind yourself of how the gospel changes lives. Like Jesus literally left his throne in heaven so that you could enter the kingdom of heaven. The, the kingdom of heaven has come in greater force than ever before in Jesus. And Jesus came from heaven so that we might go into heaven. Let the coming of Jesus make you great. Have you experienced the power of the Messiah? Have you been made great by the works of Jesus? And when we think about doubt, doubt is just a result of uncertainty. 
And though it's okay for us to doubt, it's not good when the doubting extinguishes any curiosity that you once had. The only way for us to extinguish doubt is to get to know God through his word. Like, we have to bury ourselves in it. I feel like I've had more curveballs thrown at me in this last year than maybe ever before in my life. At times, it just felt, I don't know about you guys, but you just kind of go like, seriously, another one? Even the windstorm the other, and I'm like, oh, good Lord, you know, like, I feel like we're just getting buried. It's one thing after another. And, and so many times in this last year, you guys, I've literally had to grab my Bible and go like, who am I? <laughs> I know what people are saying about me and who they think I am, but Jesus, who, who do you say I am? That's truth. The world will say all kinds of junk about you. What does God think of you? And then not only that, but the world will say all kinds of crazy stuff about God. And what do you know to be of truth about him? And where will you find that truth? Because many people will doubt and wonder and be uncertain and be a little bit curious, never to bury themselves in the book to try to figure it out. And so then they come to, you know, our pastoral staff or whatever, they're like, I, I just don't think I can do this anymore. They're like, okay, how come? I just I don't sense God, like all the stuff's going on in the world, my marriage is a wreck, like all the stuff's going on, like where's God in all of this? And then you go, have you picked this up? Who does he say you are? Who actually is he? Do you have ears to hear? Then go listen. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, but I have kind of a, a, a stupid, funny story to end with. But I had, a while ago, I had read this story about a test that was done with some kids. And, um, they took one child that was like a pessimist and they placed them in a room and with a pile of brand new toys. And then they took this other child that was the optimist and they placed him in a room with a pile of poop. And they literally just left him for a couple hours. And when they came back in to check on the kids and see how they were doing, the pessimistic kid with all the toys was in the corner of the room, just kind of like huddled up in the corner. And they said, what's going on? And he said, I'm just so afraid I'm gonna break the toys, I don't wanna to touch them. And then they go into the other room with the kid that's sitting there with this pile of poop, and there's poop everywhere, and it's all over the kid, and they're like, what is going on? And the kid goes, I just saw this massive pile of poop and figured there has to be a pony in there somewhere. <laughs> and as stupid as that sounds, to give you some perspective, you may think it's been heaped on you. You may think that it's all for naught and it's too hard and it's too dirty and I just don't wanna deal with the poop. And I'm gonna tell you this morning, there's a treasure that's in there. And sometimes it means going through a lot in life to actually see that treasure for who it actually is. It's interesting when John the Baptist says, um, I baptized for repentance. He goes on to say, but the one who's coming after me will baptize by the Spirit and fire. What an interesting statement. How do you baptize by fire? Anybody have any experience with that? Does it remind you of 
being thrown into the lion's den and promised that he may not remove you from it, but he will always be with you in it. And yet to watch this world scurry around, like it's understandable for me when the world has no hope and all they see is the pessimistic side of things. But for you, church, you have eyes to see and ears to hear. You, you plant yourself down in the word of God and you trust his spirit and you continue to walk forward despite how difficult it might be because you know that there's a treasure that awaits you. How do you know that the treasure awaits you? Because the word tells us this. That what's on this life, what we experience on this earth pales in comparison to what we receive eternally. Pales. And this last week was like such a crazy reminder when this windstorm hit. Because there's like three trees down on my road and numerous people in the church had trees hit their houses and power was out and all this stuff's going on. And I was hearing somebody say something at one point that said, you know, uh, the trees fell down because it was a result of all the rain we've been getting and the soil was loose and so the trees didn't really have anything holding them up and they were being uprooted and falling over. And I'm like, that's interesting. For a couple hundred years, we've never had a storm like this before. Like, now's the time. And yet we tell people in the church all the time, like, put your roots down, right? Like, we want you to be rooted. We want you to be connected. We want you to actually know the Lord for your roots to go down deep. So when the winds and the storms come, the tree will not fall. But the other part of the story is that you can't just be a bunch of roots. You have to actually be surrounded by really good soil. When we talk about the church, we talk about community, we talk about the word of God, we talk about the spirit of God, like all of these things are not for just you to be good moral people that do good things. It's so that our prayer is that the church would actually get its roots down deep in the truth and be surrounded by soil that would actually hold fast through the worst of storms so that when that thing comes, you aren't one of them that blows off, that blows this way and that as a result of the wind that's come. We stand strong, and we don't stand strong to point back to us. We stand strong to point back to Jesus and say, like, by God's grace, I made it. <laughs> by God's grace, I will continue to make it. And by God's grace, there's a treasure, a gift that is, awaits me someday after I go through all the junk that I go on through on this earth that's very short and temporal. For those of you in this room that do not know Jesus, gosh, today's the day. You think when he says, if you have ears to hear, let them hear, that it's just a statement being made in a book? It's actually saying if you hear the truth, don't deny it. Take responsibility for what it is you heard and act on it. Believe, have faith, trust the Lord. For some of you in this room, doubt has just consumed your mind and now it's just wrecked your heart. And I want to encourage you this morning that doubting, like I said, is not bad. What a cool thing to be curious and to dig in. But if your doubting leads you to a place where you're willing to just extinguish your faith altogether and never take another step, what a bummer. 
I hope that that curiosity sends you into this to go, who, who am I? Who does God say I am? And who is he? And what does he promise me on this earth when I go through the things that I'll experience? Like, dig in. Get to know him. Would you stand with me?